Amen. And good morning. It's an honor to be with you today on this Father's Day and Juneteenth, and to be able to hear God's Word with you and respond in worship. Uh, It's a particular honor for me to be here at 10th Prez, though I have not visited before in the flesh. I've been deeply ministered to by your church over the years. I can think back in the 1990s as I was trying to discern a call to ministry and listening regularly, weekly to little cassette tapes, if you remember those, of uh, Dr. Jim Boyce uh, preaching. He actually came down to my church in Bethesda, Fourth Prez, and and spoke there a couple of times, and I was able to meet him. I actually used to have a pretty good James Boyce impersonation that um, I think has, has, has waned over the years. Uh, but more recently, I've been able to enjoy the fellowship and advice and teaching of your pastor, Liam Golliger, as well. And so you've been a minister to me in so many ways, and it's a joy to be here. I bring greetings from the chancellor of RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary. His name's Ligon Duncan, and our board and our faculty. And I am thrilled to be here with you this morning, sharing out of God's Word, particularly from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 20 through 26. It's the Gospel of John, chapter 17, 20 through 26. This comes at a point in Jesus' ministry where um, everything is about to take a turn. He's about to be betrayed and move into that last phase of the Passion Week. And right before he is, he's still seated there amongst his disciples, he offers up a prayer that's commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer because it's a prayer of intercession. He's praying for first his disciples, and then he changes, as you'll see here at the very end of the prayer, and he prays not merely for the disciples surrounding him, but he begins to pray for those who will believe because of the disciples' words. That means this is Jesus' prayer for us. And so the gospel writer is giving us a unique insight into the thoughts and the concerns of our Lord as he is about to be betrayed unto the cross. So John chapter 17 verse 20 begins like this. I do not ask for these also, or these only, and there Jesus is referring to the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear the words of our shepherd, I pray that like 
the sheep of the gospel, we would hear his voice. Lord, let us hear the voice of our shepherd and respond. Dear Lord, I pray that in the power of the Spirit of Christ, we would not only rightly identify this as the words of our shepherd and love them, that our hearts would be attuned to them, but that our minds would be attuned to them, that we might understand what you have to say for us this morning. Dear Lord, attune our hearts to you, attune our minds to you, and I pray, Lord, that you would also attune our tongues to you, that we would respond in the only way that is appropriate with that new song of the psalmist, a song of worship and praise. Dear Lord, I pray that you bless this time in your son's name. Amen. Well, as Liam introduced me, he, he did mention that um, I am the president of Reformed Theological Seminary, but I also teach Old Testament there. And actually, that, that second job, that's the job I was trying to discern when I was trying to figure out my calling. I don't think anyone says, hmm, do I want to be a president of a seminary or not? That's not really the job people long for. Um, and I can tell you why, but that's a whole different topic. Um, but the Old Testament part of the job, that was the part that really got me excited and interested, in part because teaching Old Testament has a specific joy to it, and that you're often teaching a part of the Bible that most Christians aren't very familiar with. As a matter of fact, one of my colleagues at RTS, another Old Testament professor, sometimes jokingly introduces himself as a professor of irrelevance. As he says, the Old Testament's not very relevant, right, to us, to us gospel believers. Um, or it reminds me of a story I once heard about a basketball player after a particularly bad game, you know, running off the court to the coach, and the coach turns to him and says, son, are you ignorant or apathetic? And the player says, coach, I don't know, and I don't care. This is how a lot of my students, I think, sometimes think about the Old Testament. They don't know and they don't care because, after all, we have Jesus. Why would we go back to the Old Testament? Well, let me make a little bit of an apologia. This is a, this is a bit of job security for me. Let me make an argument as to why we should learn the Old Testament. And I, if you'll suffer me this analogy, I'd like to share this with you. So imagine this. Imagine that you are going out to build a house or you're going out to build some kind of structure. How do you do it? Do you just gather your materials together, your wood and your nails and your, you know, your scaffolding and your ladder, and do you just go out into a field and begin building? No, of course not. That would be foolhardy. What do you do? You set out a plan. You lay out the building on paper where you can make mistakes, and then you can go out later and build the building in full. We call that the blueprint. I'm sure there are architects here. You know all about blueprints. And when someone asks you, by the way, tell me about this house you're building. I heard you were working on something. What do you do when you're in the design phase? You, you take them to the blueprint, right? And you say, here's my building. Here, here it is. Here's the work that I'm doing. But once the house is built and someone comes to you and says, show me the work that you've been doing. I, I heard you were building a house. Can I see it? You don't take them to the blueprint once the house is finished. You, you take them to the house, right? You, you take them and you show them the house. I, I've gone to visit, my, my wife and I are kind of interested in architecture, and it's always fun to go visit the work of an architecture, of an architect, and you get to see it being worked out. Maybe later you'll go back and look at the blueprint if you kind of want to get some details, but really the joy is seeing the house itself. That's the job. That's the work that was done. Well, let me argue this, that the Old Testament 
is the blueprint, and the gospel, or the New Testament, we might say, is the house. Now, bear with me. If someone comes to you and says, how can I be saved? I heard that you're interested in redemption. How can I be redeemed? You take them to the house. You take them to Christ Jesus himself. Yet, as with a house and a blueprint, once the house is built, you don't throw away the blueprint. Why? How do you, how do you use the blueprint once the house is built? You use it when you want to understand how the house works. As a matter of fact, I just did some renovation work at our campus down at RTS in Washington, and there are two pillars in the middle of my two classrooms, and they sit there, kind of like these here, and they block out. They really get rid of about 10 seats that I could otherwise put in this classroom because the pillar's right there, and no one's going to sit behind those pillars. But I can't just knock the pillars out, right? Because they're load-bearing. How do I know that? Because the blueprint tells me so. If I want to know where the electrical is laid, if I want to know where the plumbing is, where the emergency escapes, I need the blueprint. The blueprint tells me how the building works. So let me argue this. The New Testament is the house, but the New Testament actually tells us precious little about what the gospel of redemption is actually doing. Let me even start with this. You might say, well, we know Jesus through the New Testament. Absolutely. But Jesus is called the Christ, right? That's not his last name. You know that, right? Jesus Christ. Christ is his title. He's Messiah. Do you know that nowhere in the New Testament that is actually explained who Messiah is? What Messiah ought to do? What he ought to be? You have to go to the Old Testament to understand that. You might say, well, I do. I, I learned from the New Testament Jesus saves me from my sin. Well, well what is sin? We have to go back to the Old Testament to see what sin is, see how it breaks the relationship that we have with God. We have to look at all those sacrifices of the Old Testament to see how sin brings uh, an infection, it breaks, um, it breaks a relationship, it puts us into debt, it cancels out a meal. Okay, that's, isn't that interesting that one of the sacrifices is a shared meal between the priests and the person bringing the sacrifice? What is that? It's showing a reconciling, that you can break bread again with your Lord because of redemption. We have to go back to the Old Testament to see what sin is and what it's done to us. If you want to understand redemption, exile, restoration from exile, creation, new creation, temple, the spirit of the Lord, we have to go back to the Old Testament to understand how the building works. Well, the gospel writer John is very familiar with the Old Testament, and particularly he's very familiar with this blueprint-like quality of the Old Testament. He recognizes that in order to explain who Jesus is to his audience, he has to be able to draw out the Old Testament text. In many ways, John, like the other gospel writers, are writing kind of hyperlinked type texts. They're constantly referencing back to the Old Testament. Usually they'll say things like, this was to fulfill what was said by the prophet Isaiah, or this was to fulfill what was said of old. They're referencing back to the Old Testament so that you can understand what's happening in the new. John uses Old Testament citations and quotes to teach us who Jesus is. And he needed to do that because it seems as if there were some in his audience who didn't quite understand or they had misinterpreted who Jesus was. 
Now, we can read between the lines of John's gospel and of his letters and, and see kind of what it was that those people were believing that he was confronting. It seemed as if there had been some heresies that had developed up. And John, in writing his gospel and then writing the letters that followed the gospel, is drawing out those heresies from the church and then showing how they are false, how they're untrue. And if we read between the lines, we can see how John is really dealing with two problems. One problem is this. There seemed to be a group of people who had begun to believe that Jesus was God. Okay, so far so good. But that as a result of him being God, we shouldn't say that he was truly man. He must have been a spirit. Maybe he was an apparition. He could appear and disappear maybe. Was he really truly man or was he a, a vision, some kind of spiritual theophany? But there was another error too that John was confronting. It's this, that people believed, oh no, he's truly man. But as a result, we shouldn't say that he was truly God. He was a man, he was a great teacher, but let's not say he was God. Maybe he was a demigod. Maybe he was some kind of angel or or, or some other kind of lower spiritual being who's not quite God and yet he's a man. Because after all, why would God become a man? Humans, they get old. They can smell bad. Their lives are tiring. Why would God become a human? You can see both of these people were trying to deal with the person of Jesus, and yet they had both fallen into this heresy. So notice how John uses the teaching of the Old Testament to do away with this false belief. He does it sometimes explicitly by citing the Old Testament text and then saying, and this is now fulfilled in Jesus. He also sometimes does it in more subtle ways. Sometimes he just lightly alludes to an Old Testament text. Richard Hayes at Duke Divinity School calls these echoes of the Old Testament that the New Testament writers use, that they echo the Old Testament. They kind of subtly reference it without giving a direct quote. I'll give you an example of one that I'm sure you'd be familiar with. It's the very opening of the Gospel of John, the prologue to John. How does it begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice what John is doing there. He's not saying, as it says in Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus is God. He doesn't doesn't come right out and say that. But he says, in the beginning. And in saying, in the beginning, he's clearly echoing and alluding back to the Genesis 1 story about the heavens and the earth being created. So what is John saying? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who was God? The Word. The Word was with God, but the Word was God. Yes, I mean that God. The creator God is who the word was. Jesus is truly God. He's not, it's not as if he's God. It's not that he's representing God or something like that. He is the creator God from Genesis 1. But then notice, where does John go throughout the prologue? He continues on and says, and that word, it became flesh, right? He's addressing both issues. This is truly creator God, Genesis 1, and he truly became flesh and walked amongst us. See, John likes using these echoes, these subtle references to the Old Testament to make a point. Sometimes he's making it explicitly, but also like a good lawyer, sometimes he's making it subtly and persuasively. We see it elsewhere where John recounts 
Jesus' teaching about himself, particularly how Jesus keeps saying things like this, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, the way. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Before Abraham was, what? I am. See, Jesus isn't just making a bunch of truth claims about himself as a vine and a light and a way that he's saying that, but he's saying it in a very specific way that John is recording for us. He keeps saying, ego me" in the Greek, I am. A clear translation from Exodus where Moses is given the divine name, Efe, Asher, Efe, I am that I am. See, Jesus keeps claiming the divine name for himself. Unless you say, well, preacher, you're going a little far. I don't know. You might be reading a little bit into that. Notice the Pharisees and the scribes who hear Jesus say these things, they know exactly what he's saying. And that's why they pick up stones to throw at him. They know what he's saying. It's not missed on them. Well, I want to argue that John is using a bit of an echo here. He's relying on the Old Testament as the blueprint in helping us understand what Jesus is accomplishing for us, not only in his life, but in his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension to glory. And John is using an echo of a passage that we looked at on Friday in the discipleship conference, and we unpacked it in full. I'll do it just briefly here, but we unpacked it in full if you want to go back and watch those lectures sometime later. But this would have been a subtle reference, but a very clear reference to any Second Temple Jewish person who was hearing this prayer that Jesus is making in the high priestly prayer, because it's a reference to probably the best-known Old Testament text of the Second Temple period, maybe even of all time, and that is this passage of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, it's known in Jewish circles, or it's known by its Hebrew name, the Shema, because of the first word in Hebrew is hear, as in hear this, hear, O Israel, and that in Hebrew is the word Shema. So if you have any Jewish friends or if you come from a Jewish background, you know about the Shema. You've heard that term before. But this would have been a very common prayer, and it's the one that Jesus calls the greatest commandment of the Old Testament. It goes like this, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Akkad, hear, O Israel, The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your self, we talked about this on Friday, with all of your self, and with all of your outward strength in the world. See, the Shema was the beating heart of the Mosaic Covenant. It was the culmination of everything else that comes after. Why do you honor the Lord's day? Why do you not lie? Why do you care for your parents? Why do you not try to steal? Why do you honor marriage? Why do you not use the Lord's name in vain? Because you are loving the Lord your God with all of your inner self, with all of your self-self, Right, even bind it to your hands and your frontlet, said Moses. That's how he talks about loving it with your, loving the Lord your God with your, with your body and loving the Lord your God with all of your effect in the world. Put it on your doorposts, put it on your gateposts, put it on your property. Talk about it when you're in your business meetings. 
Everything is to be directed to the love of the Lord. So this is the logic of the Shema. The logic goes like this. The Lord is our God. So how is he our God? Do we we own him? Did I make him like an idol and put him up on my mantelpiece? That's what the, the prophet Isaiah makes fun of, the idol maker who makes an idol and then puts it on his mantelpiece and then says, oh, I worship you, my maker. And Isaiah says, we just saw you make it. You just made it, and now you're calling it your maker. Okay, it's not your maker. That's not how we own God. That's not how God is our God. How is he our God? He's our God because he's bound himself to us in covenant. He loves us. He says, people who curse you, well, it's going to be like they're cursing me. You're going to be like a a wife to me, and I'm going to be like your loving spouse. You're going to be like a child to me, and I'm going to be like your loving father. He's bound to us. He's our God. But he's also one. He's, he's, he's not like the Baals. He's not divided up. It's not like you can go to Baal, you know, to, to the Lord in Philadelphia, and that's one Lord. But if you go to the Lord in, in Washington, D.C., or New York City, or Pittsburgh, then that's another Lord. It's the same Lord everywhere you go. He's one God, the creator of the heavens and earth. And so you should love him in a similar fashion. You should love him covenantally, because he's your covenant God. But you should also love him with all of who you are. Don't don't be divided up. Don't be fragmented. Don't be divisive. You can't have little fiefdoms within your life where you get to rule and God doesn't rule. Love him with all that you are, your inner self, your self-self, your outward effect in the world, your estate, your capital, your strength. And what's interesting is that Jesus is taking this very well-known creed of the Old Testament, and he's using it to frame the prayer that he makes for his disciples and for us. Notice how he begins, Father, just as I am in you and you are in me, we are one. Notice what he's saying. He's saying the Shema has not been now made obsolete. It's not as if God is no longer one. Now God is two. He's the Father and the Son and the Spirit or something like that. Notice he says, no, no, God is still one, but he is one, Father and Son. I and the Father are one. You see, Jesus is framing his prayer around an exposition of Deuteronomy 6, but now he is upgrading it, he's updating it to account for the revelation of himself. He says, Father, you and I are one. He's not making a statement about his oneness with the Father in a new way, but rather he's appropriating this great creed of God's oneness, Deuteronomy 6. And he's saying God is one, Father and Son are one. It's interesting, this isn't the only place where we find these kinds of quotes of the Shema in the New Testament. Paul, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 8, does a similar work. He's, he's accounting for the truth of the Shema, the oneness of God, in light of the resurrection or the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he says this, this is in 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6, Paul writing, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, for whom we exist. That's one God. He's using the Hebrew word Elohim. He says it in the Greek, theos. And also one Lord, now using that other divine name for God, 
Adonai, one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You see, the truth of God's oneness is not an abstract theological principle, but it has direct bearing for Jesus and for Paul on the unity of the people. The logic of the high priestly prayer says this, because the Son enjoys union with the Father, so does he desire unity between the people whom the Father has given him. Notice again Christ's role as an intercessor and mediator here because notice he's not just saying let them be one, but he's saying, dear Lord, just as I am in you, Father, let them also be in me, one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. Jesus is the intercessor. He's the conduit. He's the way in which we are made whole. You see, if we don't stop for a moment and consider the blueprint... Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength because God is one, then we miss the world historical value of what Christ is saying here. You see, what, what Jesus is doing is he's revealing the goal that the Shema was always aimed at. You see, the Shema gives voice to the truth that the unified character of the Lord demands a response from the people that is similarly unified, that because God is one, we are called to be one. We must love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength, just as we prayed in our confessional prayer this morning. We failed to do that, but we're called to it. But Christ gives voice to the means by which the Shema may be perfected in a new covenant, It's ratified by the blood of Christ. God is one, therefore you should be one. But Jesus says, I am in them and the Father is in me. That's how they can become one. That's how Jesus unites those who are separate and makes them whole. Jesus says, it is by and through me that unity in the midst of plurality of the people of God is possible. And he appropriates Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and updates it to account for his intercessory work. Now notice, he doesn't just say, be one, so just go do it, okay? But notice what he says at the end of the prayer, so that they will know, Father, that you loved me. You see, the goal here is again love, just as in Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God in your oneness. So notice we're not being called here to kind of a cold ecumenism. We're not being called to just gather together. I I belong to several ecumenical groups because I'm in Washington, D.C., and we have theological consortiums there. And um, it's notable when you go into a lot of these ecumenical gatherings, it's just kind of like coffee and donuts, right? And we kind of stand around and chat and we be one together, right? But it's it's not a loving whole fellowship that Jesus is calling us to here. He's calling us to love. He's calling us to warm, loving, professing affection for one another. We should show the love that the Father has for the Son in the way that we love one another. There ought to be a strange attraction that we have to Christians, even ones who are very different from us. Even people who have different political views. Even people who have different backgrounds, different, different family of origin stories, different ethnicities, different cultures informing them. There should be this kind of strange attraction that we have because we are united 
to the Father through Christ. Well, I want to talk generally. Let me just close with this. I want to talk about three things, three ways in which we are united in Christ. We could talk about a whole variety of ways, but these are the three that I think are being kind of brought into view here and that Paul will also bring into view elsewhere in his letters. We're united in Christ. We're made one in him, this thing that he's praying for, in several different ways. But one of them is this. We are united in Christ because we are united under his lordship. Okay, so we're united under Christ's lordship. We have this one shared loyalty that is to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are one because of our belief in him. The gospel that we accept requires that we confess and worship one Lord Jesus Christ. He's our king. We serve him above all others. No other loyalty can or should vie for our attentions. Doesn't mean that we're all the same. We can have differences. We can even have differing loyalties. And yet none of them even come close to the loyalty that we have to our Lord and Savior. We're all united in the fact that there is one cause, the cause of Jesus, that we will give everything that we are for the sake of. This means that because we share this one lordship, we're called to suffer alongside one another because we are suffering in solidarity for Christ. It means coming alongside even those who suffer more acutely than you do. I get the privilege in my line of work to work with a group of pastors in North Africa and the Middle East who are uh, Muslim converts and they're now put into positions of authority in their churches, as is often the case. Adult converts are often uh, passionate for the gospel and they're put into positions of authority and so they need training and I get to work with some seminaries that are involved in training up those pastors. And one thing I know right away, as soon as I started doing this 15 years ago, I'd walk into the classroom and you'd be sitting there with 30 individuals, all of whom would have stories of having been jailed and most of whom have stories of having been beaten in some physical way because they are Christians. You know, I I recognized right away, no matter how I suffer for Christ here in the United States, they suffer more acutely than I do. And I started to realize the power of being in solidarity with those who are suffering and sharing in the sufferings of Christ more acutely than I am. It means suffering together, as Paul said, being partakers in the sufferings of Christ together. It also means rejoicing together. It means recognizing and having empathy for one another and hearing their stories and hearing the things that give them joy and rejoicing alongside with them in life, in worship, in small groups, wherever we find gatherings of believers. We're called to come together under our unified lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way in his letter to the Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. Notice how the union in Christ is described. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, for Paul, our joint 
unified loyalty, allegiance to Christ should result in gentleness, patience, humility, and bearing with one another in peace. Now this also though, leads us to the second way in which we're unified. So we're unified under Christ's lordship, but notice what Paul just said there. We are bound together in peace. Why? Through the unity of the Spirit. You see, we're also unified, not merely under Christ's lordship, but through the power of his spirit indwelling us. That is actually the spirit who is the unspoken member of this last part of the prayer in John 17. How is it that we are made one in Christ as he is in the Father? How does that happen, that we are united with him? Jesus is risen to heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. How can I be united with him? Well, I'm united to him by his spirit, the spirit of Christ. You see, this teaching is profound because it means that each one of us has a same spirit. Each one of us has an existential connection that we have in common, and that is the spirit of Christ who regenerates us and indwells us. That means that no matter our differences, no matter our tensions, no matter our different ways of seeing things, our different perspectives, no matter what that is, we all down in our deepest selves have a shared spiritual DNA. We are of a family. Our battles are not the battles of people who are strangers. Our battles are the battles of family. These are family conversations around the table. We are one species in Christ. We are little temples bearing the same spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul writes about it this way in his letter. He continues on in Ephesians 4, now in verses 4 through 6. He says this, Therefore, there is one body, all of you, and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call, one Lord, you hear he's also quoting the Shema again here, okay? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We give expression to our unity in the Spirit by our participation in the sacraments, by baptism, as we just got to enjoy this morning, by coming together regularly to participate in the Lord's Supper where we take this sign and this seal that by the power of the Spirit unifies us, unites us to Christ. You see, because of this deep connection, this deep intimacy, there should be a very high bar set for things that might divide us. You see, this is where Jesus is providing for us in the Spirit the means by which that commandment of the Shema for us to be one in our love for the Lord our God. Moses commands it. Jesus provides the groundwork for it. Moses says, go do this thing. Go love God in this way. Jesus comes and through the power of his Spirit empowers us to fulfill the calling of the Shema. In many ways, that's a great microcosm of how the Old Testament relates to the new. The Torah commands, and what it commands is good and right. Jesus provides the means by which it can be fulfilled. The Spirit indwells us and empowers us to love God in the way that is appropriate. 
So we're bound together because of our joint observance of the Lordship of Christ. We're bound together because of the Spirit bonding us together, giving us this shared spiritual DNA. And then lastly, we are bound together because we all are united in having the same aim, the same goal. We are bound by our mutual recognition that Jesus is Lord, but we are bound by the fact that that means that we will spend eternity together in the worship of him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes Christian unity like this. He says this, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? It means first, that the Christian needs others because of Christ. It means second, that a Christian comes to others only through Christ. And it means third, that in Jesus Christ we have been chosen from eternity accepted in time, and united for eternity. It's incredible, this eternal hope that we have binding us together, that no matter our differences, no matter who we are, when we were born, what our value judgments are about preferences in life, we will be bound together in eternity, worshiping the living God. Just close with this story. I, I was over there in the Mediterranean basin working with some of these pastors I mentioned to you earlier. And as often happens in the mission field, you'll be going to worship or something along the way. And if you're the missionary who's there, if you're kind of the person from out of town, you're, you're the unique person, <laughs> folks will say, um, you know, kind of sometimes on the way to church, uh, hey, would you be willing to preach today? Okay. And I was warned of this already, so I had a, I had a sermon in my back pocket. And, and here we were, we, we were in the van, we were going down into the village to worship, and, and the translator turned to me and said, um, will you be willing to, worship, uh, to lead worship today? And I said, yeah, absolutely, I love that. And she said, okay, good, thanks. And then people were chatting for a while, and then he, he turned back to me and he said, um, by the way, last time we were here, there was a riot. I said, okay, all right. So now I'm trying, to, I'm trying to prepare a sermon in my head, and I'm also a little worried about the riot. And, and what had happened is that there was a local group within the village that was actually um, trying to intimidate this church and intim- intimidate the Christians and have them not meet. And what they had done before, they had kind of done a march against the church the week before. But this Sunday, they'd done something a little bit different. They'd actually pulled up a big package truck and parked it right outside the church and then just left. Okay, so the message was loud and clear. They were trying to intimidate the church there. Now, this was a normal occurrence for this church. It was not a normal occurrence for me. All right. So as we got out of the van, we went in, and I took up the Bible, and I began to preach out of Mark chapter 2, I remember. And I can just tell you, for that first half of the sermon, it was hard to be present in the sermon. I'll just lay that picture out for you, but behind me in this room where I was preaching was a glass window, a big glass window, and there was a truck, the truck was parked right there. Everyone could see it. It was, my back was to it, but I was looking at the congregation, they were all looking at me and looking at it. You know, as I'm preaching to this gathering of about 50 Syrian and Iraqi refugees, this is about six years ago, and as I'm looking into their faces, and I'm preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? I'm, I'm waiting for that window to explode. And suddenly, 
where I wasn't present in the moment, suddenly it became the most present sermon maybe I've ever given in my life. Because I realized, if this is it, if here I am with my brothers and sisters in Christ, towing the line of eternity, what better way to spend that last moment than to reminisce about the works of our Lord Jesus Christ? You see, it's incredible to imagine that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, when we're imagining how many more days we have left to sing God's grace, we're going to be there with Algerian and Mandarin speaking and Caucasian European Christians, African Americans, people from all sides of the aisle gathered together worshiping our Lord Wondering, just wondering what it will be like to be there for 10,000 years and even more. There's an incredible union that comes from our shared future in Jesus Christ. And that's why as our Lord is about to be betrayed and go to the cross on our behalf, as we're about to betray him, his thoughts are for us and for us being one, just as he and the Father are one. And do you think the first person of the Trinity will not hear the prayer of the second person of the Trinity and give him what he asks? We can count on it. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do lift up your word. I pray, Lord, that as we hear it, we would be drawn to you, that we might even see Christ afresh through the power of the Spirit, testifying to our spirit and advocating for the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Dear Lord, we thank you that we were on your mind as you were about to go to the cross. And we thank you that you call us to be united in you just as you are in the Father. Dear Lord, I pray that through the power of the Spirit we would enjoy a fresh regeneration in the Spirit and the oneness and the wholeness that you have called us to. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.